I was very thankful that when I went uh, with my family on vacation a couple weeks ago, Lisa was willing and uh, able to provide uh, pulpit supply, bring the gospel uh, for you to hear in my absence. And when I got back, I said to her, Lisa, thank you so much for doing that. And she looked at me and said, you're welcome. Like that. Look winking at me. I was like, what are you doing? I know I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being sarcastic. Thank you. I, I heard that it was a good message. She said, ah, you're welcome. I said, Lisa, is there something going on here I don't know about? You're freaking me out. She said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't tell you. I had my eye operated on. They removed the cataract and, you know, fixed it all up and did this other stuff. And it's like, I've got a new eye. And I look at you with this one eye and I can see you really clearly. And, of course, on Wednesday, she's going to have her other eye done. And hopefully she'll be looking at us with two eyes and seeing us incredibly clearly. And it's, it's wild to me. I didn't realize before I got into ministry how many people and how often get cataract surgery. Uh, in my mind, as a kid, I remember hearing that my, my grandmother was having the Cadillacs uh, removed from her eyes, not knowing what that meant. And, and my mother said, oh, when people get very old, that happens. But it doesn't seem to be very old. People start to get these, these clouded lenses in their eyes. And when you think about In in ancient times, and even not all that long ago, this would have just meant you're starting to go blind. In in Jesus' day, many of the blind beggars sitting on the road, it wasn't because they were born blind, it was because their eyes worked perfectly fine, but those lenses were clouded, and they couldn't see, and their lives were drastically changed. What a great gift from God, to be able to be given new eyes. Thank God for that, and for those doctors and everyone involved in doing that. And you know, Jesus actually used this as a, a picture, an illustration of the gospel. He says in Matthew 6, that the eye is the lamp of the body. And, and so if your eye is healthy, the body is full of light. But if the eye is bad, the light in the body is darkness and how great the darkness is. He wasn't like ripping on people with cataracts. He was saying spiritually speaking, if you have a veil before your eyes, and of course we were reading about that last week and a little more this week, you're going to be filled with darkness. And once we come to faith, I know that every Christian I've spoken with about this says they have, they have some degree of experience of this where suddenly the, the scales are removed from their eyes as they were with St. Paul and they can see so much more clearly. But the thing is, you don't just see the good more clearly. You see the world more clearly. And what's hard about being a believer is being able to see the effects of sin and the curse in the world so clearly in light of what God really intended for this creation to be. Uh, 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 Cyprian, rather, uh, Cyprian, a a third century Christian martyr, was writing to a friend of his, and he he wrote this uh, many, many centuries ago, millennia ago, really. This is a cheerful world as I see it from my garden, under the shadows of my vines. But if I were to ascend some high mountain and look over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the highways, pirates on the sea, armies fighting, cities burning. In the amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds. Selfishness and cruelty and misery and despair under all roofs. It is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are master of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. 
And that is very much what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians 4 as he continues to defend his own apostleship against the accusations of these false apostles, these super apostles as he calls them. He he starts to talk about how the gospel actually highlights our frailty and opens our eyes to not just positivity, but everything and how we then have an, an opportunity and a sacred duty to bring the gospel to bear in a hurting world. He begins by saying, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So because Paul is not motivated by money, as he pointed out in chapter 2, or by the praise of the people who hear him, or by approval of humans at all, he is able to say to them, I don't need a letter of recommendation. You're my letter of recommendation. And if you want me to be commended to you, I commend myself to your conscience by the word of God. He did not need to tailor the message to the desires of his audience. And he refused to do it. And and so we see here this word tamper. That's a great translation. The the word actually is most frequently used in in the uh, New Testament world to describe those who would sell wine taking the fine wines and watering them down with the crummy wine, but selling it as fine wine. He's not going to water down the gospel. He is going to give it in all of its potency. He is going to give it sharp edges and all. He will not tamper with it. And you know, the gospel is tampered with frequently. The most popular Preachers, teachers, movies, books are very often popular because people want to hear a watered-down gospel that makes them feel good. And and the gospel is not tamper-proof. You know, you hear about tamper-proof bottles? Such a thing doesn't really exist. You give me a bottle, I'll tamper with it. What we really have is tamper-evident bottles. I remember in the 80s there was this thing, everyone was freaking out about uh, Tylenol. There was poison in Tylenol. And they, they really upped the way they did the tamper evidence so that you, if you got in and messed with something, it would be obvious. And the gospel is not tamper proof, but it's tamper evident to those of us who have experienced its power. When you see something less powerful passing itself off as gospel, you go ding, 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 warning bells. Yeah, that is not the gospel at all. It's evident to us. But it is not evident to everyone. Paul goes on, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Calling back to our text from last week, when he talked about Moses coming down off the mountain, his face was shining, glowing, and he put a veil over it so that people could look at him and it wouldn't freak them out and wouldn't be afraid to approach him. And he would remove the veil when he went in to talk to God and he would put it back on. And then he said that same veil is over the hearts of these people as they read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. It remains until, through the Spirit, Christ removes the veil and they can understand what is being taught. And we see here that this is not just something that's happening in synagogues when the Old Covenant is being read, but rather this is something that that extends to all of mankind. They're, They're veiled. It's in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means this is the the consistent and and ongoing case, the fixed state of everyone until Christ comes down and undoes it. They will hear the gospel, but as Jesus said, hearing they do not comprehend. 
They see, but they do not see. Their eyes are open, but their spiritual cataracts are firmly in place. And so the same gospel hits two different groups of people entirely differently. Just as, as he said in an earlier text, the, the, the smell, the aroma, it's the stench of death to those who are perishing. It is the sweet aroma of life to those who are being saved. It's not a difference in the gospel, it's a difference in the one perceiving it. Or we might talk about when the Israelites were up against the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was coming down and on both sides there were sheer faces of cliff and they said, we are trapped and we are doomed. And then that pillar of cloud they'd been following, the Holy Spirit, came and moved between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And we're told, and it's easy to miss this, that that same cloud provided light for the Israelites and was an absolute cloud of darkness to the Egyptians. The difference was in who was on either side of that cloud. See, this is something supernatural. The gospel in our culture, we're so into facts and figures and, and you know, people arguing on television and trying to convince each other of this or that through, through logic and reason. And with the gospel, you cannot argue someone into being able to comprehend it. It is a supernatural thing. If it were not supernatural, it couldn't save you. It is something that, that is veiled to the natural mind and only through the work of the Holy Spirit can it become uh, not only comprehended but take uh, ownership of someone and they are saved, born again, and are made into a new creation. People do not want to be around the stench though. People often get very, very uh, discouraged when they proclaim the gospel to someone. That person, I don't want to hear that. Remember. No one wants to smell that smell of death. I remember listening to a radio show I used to listen to when I lived in Grand Rapids, and they were asking people, what is your favorite smell, especially if it's something weird? You know, what is it that you like to smell that most people don't? And I remember a number of people said, oh, gasoline. I really like when I'm around like a gas pump. I kind of, I know it's bad for me, but I can't help it. A bunch of people also said skunks. Not right up to the skunk, but like, just like, like, ah, skunk. That's weird. But nobody called in and said, ah, decaying flesh. I love the smell of death. That'd be, that's like criminally weird. People don't want to be around. And so in order for us to be able to bring the gospel, you want to shroud that and you want to completely absorb that preaching of the gospel in prayer. Lay the groundwork. You are praying. You recognize as you enter into any encounter where you're going to tell someone what Christ has done for them that the Holy Spirit needs to remove the blinders from their eyes so that seeing they will comprehend. The gospel illuminates for us how Christ's death on the cross makes it possible for us to go into his presence, the presence of an almighty God, and not be destroyed by it. Remember back in in chapter 3, verse 18? We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That with an unveiled face, we can go into his presence. That is what's happening here. But that veil that remains, that's, that's something that Satan loves to use. In verse 4, he he brings the devil into the mix here, and he acknowledges the, the role that he plays. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. 
to keep them from seeing the light. He's blinded the minds. Now, the worldly actually make Satan their god. And that sounds really intense and, and really extreme. And like something that a very small number of people would do, right? But when we are looking at this through biblical categories, having the devil for your god is not something that looks like, you know, a black mass and goat heads and, and everyone around in a circle chanting, I want to kill everyone, Satan is good, Satan is our pal. It, it looks a lot more benign. It looks like I have myself as my god. I have my interests as my my God, my, my source of life. I have my ends in mind for my glory. That is what we, we understand to be having the God of this world blind you to the truth of the gospel. It's not an opt-in thing. Let's see, should I make Satan my God? If he's the God of this world, this is an opt-out. This is a situation where we need to be saved from being in the realm of darkness. When Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he said, you are like your father, the devil. And they're like, wait, when did we start worshiping the devil? They didn't even know, but he knew. He saw their hearts. So those who do not believe are those who are perishing under the God of this world. John 3.16, everyone knows that, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But read the next verse. Those who believeth not stand condemned already. Already condemned. And so Christ needs to come and say, we've been blinded and we need our eyes opened. Now, brief aside, what do we do then with the passage in Revelation 20 that, that describing the inter-advent period, describing the church age, says that Christ, when he came, Satan fell like lightning and Christ had him bound and cast into a bottomless pit so he could no longer deceive the nations. And yet here in this passage, he's, he's making it so that people cannot see because they're blind. Well, he has no power over the gospel. Once the gospel is preached, you might have someone who's in utter darkness, and you say, I don't even know if it's worth talking to that person about Jesus. They're going to mock me, they're going to laugh at me, and they're not going to change. There's nothing Satan can do to overcome the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit. He is helpless. That's why we see the nations more and more coming to Christ. But he's blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The, the Greek word there is akon or icon. To see the icon, the very image. Where do you see the glory of God most clearly represented? Don't look inside yourself like Oprah wants you to. Don't even look to creation. Yeah, you'll see God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. But that's just backup singers to the main event. Okay? Jesus said, yeah, if you don't cry out my praise, the rocks will say, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll cry out themselves. That's a backup plan. No, if you want to see the glory of God most clearly, turn your eyes upon Jesus in the words of the song. Look full in his glorious face. That is where the glory of God is. And that is who Paul preaches. He says, we don't preach ourselves. We simply do not do it. The temptation is there to preach self. But a gospel preacher cannot, and a disciple of Jesus who is going and making disciples cannot make it all about yourself. And, and that is a temptation. Let me tell you about my story and how good things are with me now. Careful with that stuff. Careful that doesn't take center stage. It's got to be about Christ. Who does this lift up? Who is the one who is the hero of the story? It's Jesus Christ if it's the gospel. 
The false preachers in Corinth, they promoted themselves. They didn't want to look foolish, so they, they modified the gospel. And they tempered with it. And they made it more palatable, and they made it more about me and what I can accomplish. This is happening today, of course. But Paul says, that's not what we're about. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He says, this is the same God who spoke into a dark void of chaos and said, let there be light. And there was light. And it was good. And he speaks into us and says, let there be light where there was darkness and there is light and it is good. And this is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and it's found in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Jars of clay. Some, some of you now have a song in your head from the 90s. That was, a, that was a band. But what does this mean, jars of clay? Or earthen vessels is another translation. That might even be better. You've got to put your, your mind back before plastics and tin cans, before very easily accessible, very sturdy uh, vessels and containers were available. You had earthen vessels. You had jars of clay. And, and they were fragile. And over time, they got more fragile, and they would break down. In fact, when they found the, the Dead Sea Scrolls in jars of clay in these caves in the Middle East, they were amazed that they had lasted this long, that these caves had been just the right conditions so that they didn't break down, and then the scrolls would have all broken down, and it would have been a disaster. But, but the idea, everybody had seen jars of clay broken on the side of that. There was no problem with littering because these things were more or less biodegradable. So you, your, your vessel broke, you just threw it outside. But it's a, a sad sight, a pathetic sight, this broken thing. You know, it's like if you're driving down the road today and on the side of the road there's like a cracked old Wendy's cup or something and you're just depressed for a minute. This is a natural metaphor for human weakness. David uses it in Psalm 31. He says, I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken jar or a broken vessel. It's a reminder that we are weak and frail. When someone dies, one of our Christian euphemisms for death is, oh, this went the way of all flesh. Oh, that program went the way of all flesh. It's a reminder to us that all flesh will die. We will die. That there, there is no one strong enough but Christ to overcome the grave. Only in him do we have any hope. And, and even when we're at our peak, even before our bodies start breaking, even when you're I mean, look at Akeem there. You've got the muscles and the earlobes and everything. We're still frail. We're still frail. The, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. We cannot do what we want to do. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that I do. St. Paul says that because my flesh is weak. These earthen vessels, these jars of clay, and yet we have a treasure inside. What is the treasure? Well, it's the gospel, of course. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. And a man comes upon it, he puts the treasure back, and he buys the whole field. The field looked like nothing special, but there was a treasure in it. One of the mysteries of our religion is the capacity of such frailty, such perishing vessels, able somehow to contain such unspeakable glory. 
You know, we would think that if you took these frail vessels and, and filled them with the glory of God, it'd be like in the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember when they, they open the ark and, and out comes the glory of God and it sort of fills them and, they're like, and then bam, their heads explode and their faces melt. Sorry if you haven't seen it. It's your own fault. It's been many, many years. We would think that would be the end result, or, or maybe to put it a little bit more biblically, we would think it would be like putting new wine in old wineskins that are already stretched and cracked and frail and, and weak, and the gases expanding would cause them to explode. Jesus talked about that. But this new wine of the gospel is in these old wineskins which God is making new. There is, yes, a frailty to us. We are weaker than we would like, but God is making us stronger. We are more given to unbelief and doubt than we would like, but God is building a faith in us. And we think about Gideon's army as they went against the Midianites. What did they have? Swords and bows and arrows and shields and and bazookas. No, they had in their hands torches with a jar of clay around them. And then they broke them, and it wasn't hard to do. And when they broke them, what was inside? A light, a burning flame. And inside these jars of clay is the light of God's holy word. Starting in verse 8, he contrasts our nature with the, the grace of God. The jars of clay with the glory within. Kind of ascending higher and higher and higher and showing how we live with such power in such feeble vessels. It's an awful lot like what Cyprian said Christians do. In verse 8, he talks about our inward anguish. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. You know, when you feel afflicted, when you feel like you're, you're I'm just, I'm, I'm getting more than I can handle and more than I deserve. And have you been crushed? Are you totally crushed? Christ was crushed for us. We're told he was crushed for our iniquities. If you haven't been crushed, hey, You've not been crushed. You're afflicted, but not crushed. God is still working. We're perplexed, but not to the point of despair. And this word perplexed is such an interesting word in the Greek. It it means to be at a loss, to be very uncertain, to be in in danger of of doubt overtaking us. And often we look around at the world and we go, "Ah, ah, I just, I got nothing. How can it be this way? We're perplexed. Reminds me of a story I once heard about a man. He was, he was late for a business meeting, and he was kind of a high-powered businessman, and he was driving in his, in his Lexus. And, and as he took a corner, he realized that he was totally lost. And he looked at his little navigation system, and it had conked out, and he was so mad. And he looked around for someone to give him directions, and all he saw was this little kid playing in his front yard. So he pulled up, and he opened his window. And the kid said, hi. And the old man said, listen. I'm lost. I need help. Which way is it to Brighton? He said, I don't know. I said, all right, how do I get to Dover from here? I don't know. Forget. Is there a freeway entrance around here somewhere? I need to get back on the freeway. Help me out. Mm, I don't know. He said, okay, is there a grown-up around who can help me, who actually can give me? I, I don't know. The guy flips out and says, well, you don't know much, do you, kid? And the kid said, maybe not, but I ain't lost. (laughs) We may be perplexed at times, but we're not lost. We have our bearings. We are at home in Christ, even in the midst of this world that Cyprian describes as a bad world. 
Here we are as light in the darkness. We ain't lost. We are perplexed, but not to the point of despair. Then in verse 9, he talks about the outward distress that he was experiencing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Yes, persecution comes to the church, but they're not forsaken. Even if they're forsaken by man, they're not by God. Jesus was forsaken by both man and God on our behalf. So much greater were his sufferings than ours, to the point where he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you being persecuted? It's probably in some small way, living where and when we do. Remember, you are not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. You know, we act like it's some anomaly when persecution comes. Even when it comes in a, in a mild way. The anomaly is this, where we can gather to worship and are not persecuted. We thank God for it, but perhaps we should long for it to some degree. The purifying of the church. John Wesley was often persecuted. As he did the circuit rider preacher thing, he and his brother would often go and preach to, to uh, a lot of salt-of-the-earth people coming out of the mines and these sorts of things, and, and they were often persecuted. And there was a time when he was riding on his horse, and it dawned on him he hadn't really been persecuted in any way for three days. And instead of saying, oh, thank you, Lord, these are three great days, he thought, what am I doing wrong? So he hopped off his horse right then and there, got on his knees, so the story says, and began to pray, Lord, if I have been disobedient or sinned in some way, please bring it to my mind so that I can confess it and be right with you. And at about that moment, some you know, redneck guy came wandering out of the woods and saw him there and recognized him as the great evangelist John Wesley and thought, oh, this is too good an opportunity. And he picked up a rock and threw it at him. And as, as Wesley was praying, the rock missed and it bounced. And he said, oh, thank heaven. Everything's all right. I still have God's presence with me and hopped on his horse and rode away. God's presence is with us through the trial, not to pluck us out of the trial. Whether you're talking about the end time or this day right now, God will bring you through the trial so that you overcome, not that you, so you forfeit. Verses 10 and 11 kind of bring it to a crescendo here. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Walking around with the death of Jesus in us, we don't talk like that. We don't think like that. We don't emphasize that. American Christianity tends to emphasize power and how I can do all things and have everything and live my dreams and have victory. Or perhaps how I can take Jesus' high morals and bring them to bear on the world around me. But before any of this stuff, we first must embrace the death of Christ and make it our own so that we die to self and take up our cross and follow him. Paul's life was filled with constant reminders of that. He was under constant dangers, toils, and snares. You read about him in the book of Acts. We're going to get to a laundry list of them at the end of this letter. And he says, for you, I am suffering in this way. He, he reminds us in Philippians 3.10, the, the end goal of this. He says, he suffered loss of all things for Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, it's on the stage of human weakness that God's glory is most brightly showcased, where God's divine power triumphs. When the, the 
earthen jars are smashed, and suddenly the Midianites are surrounded by 300 torches, and hear the sound of 300 trumpets. This army that started as 30,000 strong and God wheedled them down to 300 so he could show his glory. God's the one who defeated the Midianites, confusing them so they turned against one another and began to slay each other. On the stage of human frailty and weakness and helplessness, God shows us his power. It's during times of kind of the dark night of the soul that we so often see God at work and see how he has been at work even when we were distracted by things going so well. In 1986, there were a couple of brothers who lived in a kibbutz near the Sea of Galilee, and and they made an incredible archaeological discovery without even trying to. These guys were fishermen in the very same sea where Jesus had gone and preached in a fishing boat and where Peter and James and John and Andrew had been fishermen. And they were sitting there monitoring their equipment on the beach, and they noticed something they hadn't seen before. It was kind of glistening in the shallows. It was covered with mud, and they went over and examined it, and it was a boat. And they said, this looks old. And so they called the Israeli Antiquities Authority, and they came down, and they, they assessed it, and they dated it, and they said, this thing was from the time of Jesus. It could have been the very boat that Jesus stood in and preached uh, to the crowds, or the very boat where the miraculous catch of fish had taken place. And it gave all sorts of new insight to what fishing was like in that time period, and then therefore to the gospel. And the only reason that this ma- amazing and priceless artifact was discovered was because of a three-year drought, which brought the water table abnormally low. Scripture tells us in times of spiritual dryness, when we feel like we are being afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down, often God uncovers something amazing that he has been doing in our presence. And all of that carrying the death of Christ in our bodies, it just showcases the resurrection We aren't aren't a religion of death for death's sake. We are a resurrection people. Hallelujah is our song. Knowing, Paul writes, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Dying with Christ, we rise with Christ. This is what baptism is all about. We go into the water to go into the grave with the Lord. We come out of the water rising with Christ to newness of life. We do it in water because it reminds us that we are washed clean of our sins and we do it before the congregation of the saints so that we will hold one another accountable to live lives that glorify Him and we can lift each other up when we fall. If you've not been baptized, by the way, we're doing baptisms on Easter Sunday, the very best day of the year to be baptized. But the resurrection reminds us that it's not a a religion of death. It's not just keep dying to yourself, die to yourself, die to yourself, and eventually you kind of disappear or you, you leave the cycle of death and rebirth. No, die to yourself and Christ comes in and raises you with Christ and now you are a new creation. Every Sunday, to some extent, is an Easter Sunday. This is a Sunday in Lent and while we often might say, oh, that's the third Sunday of Lent, there's no Sundays of Lent Start counting them out. Forty days, the Sundays can't count, or you're over. The Sundays themselves are not days of lament and ashes and sadness. Rather, they are reminders of the resurrection. 
And we see in our bodies, even as we carry the death of Christ, the resurrection so that we will be presented. Paul with the Christians in Corinth and you and I with one another and with all the assembly of the saints acceptable before God. As Jude writes in verse 24, he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This is all to God's glory. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we speak. He's here quoting Psalm 116. When David, having been delivered from a horrific illness, is praising God and looking back at what he's been through. He says, even when I said, I am afflicted, I believed. I believed, and so I spoke. Paul says, therefore, we also believe and therefore speak because we have the same spirit of faith. Let me ask you, do you believe? And if so, have you spoken? Are you speaking to open your mouth and proclaim the gospel to those who need to hear the life-giving words? Because here's the thing, we emphasize that without the spiritual cataracts being removed or the veil being removed from the mind, The unbeliever cannot embrace the gospel, but without the gospel, it will not happen. The gospel is God's chosen means of bringing new life to a dead world. We bring the gospel and trust God to do what we cannot do. He closes the whole passage with this. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends more and more to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Proclaim all these truths, and we suffer all these things for you. They're nothing if we can gain converts to Christ and build people up in the holy faith. And now more and more people are giving thanks. That's the dream, right? This is what we pray for. This is what we are seeking. Well, this must be what we go out and grasp. We've got to wrap our arms around it to proclaim the gospel to a hurting world, and trust that God is at work through his Holy Spirit, opening eyes, removing the cataracts, taking away that horrible filter that the devil has put in front of the faces of those who are lost that says, it's all bleak, it's all hopeless, therefore eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And blinded by the God of this world, they need new eyes, and Christ will give them. This time, let us put our faith in him, our hope in him, and go to him in prayer and ask that all these things will become more and more realities in our midst. Lord, we thank you that you've given us new eyes to see. We pray, Lord, that when we find ourselves seeing things through the old eyes, you would, through the Holy Spirit, bring us back to repentance. That you would once again remove the, the blinders that the devil so badly wants to put on our eyes, that, that, Lord, we would stop seeing the world through the lens of our culture, through the lens of our secular and, and self-promotional culture, but instead, Lord, we would see the world through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of your word, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it goes against everything the world is telling us we should value. Lord, may we value your word all the more. We pray that we would have a fire in us, that we would need to proclaim the gospel to the lost. And that, Lord, if there's anyone here today who has not put their faith in you, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit, even now, 
would be removing the veil from their mind, from their heart, and from their spiritual eyes, that they would see their need for a Savior, that they would see their desperate lack of godliness. Lord, every one of us, when we came to the cross, the one thing we knew was that we brought nothing but guilt. And that if we would be saved, it would be only by the merit of Christ and only by his death on the cross and resurrection in an empty tomb. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.